Hello, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, July the 17th, and we are continuing in our study of the book of Job. Today, we will look at chapters 38 and 39, really 38 through 41. We've come to this to the climax of this great book of Job, and, and here is the, vo- the voice of God himself. God himself is heard. He is speaking out of the whirlwind. And there are many places in the scriptures where God symbolizes his presence by wind. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the spirit of God is like the wind. It is sovereign. It blows where it will. And except a man be born of wind and water, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus used two symbols, the wind for the spirit of God and the water for the word of God. We are born again by the word of God and by the spirit of God. And on the day of Pentecost, God turned on a mighty rushing wind like a great siren that brought the whole city down to the temple to see the strange phenomenon that was taking place there, the speaking in other tongues and the dancing flames of fire on the heads of the disciples. So this is a frequent symbol of script in scripture for God out of this whirling wind, the voice of God comes in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Some of the commentators have thought that perhaps these words were addressed to Elihu, that God is saying to the young man, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? But at the end of the book, Job applies these words to himself. And so it's clear that it's not Elihu, but Job that God is speaking to. God challenges Job and says that Job, by the ignorant words that he's uttered has been darkening the light that could have come to him. How many times have I done the same thing? God is trying to speak to me, speak to us, but we've darkened the light by ignorant words of complaint or rebuke, rebellion. So God challenges Job, gird up your loins like a man and let me ask you some questions. You have claimed that you want a trial before me. Well, let me examine your competence to see if you can answer some simple questions first. And he indicates that the questions will be those that a man can answer. And in the account that follows God's great discourse to Job, which runs through chapters 38 to 41, we have the voice of God subjecting Job to a series of very, very penetrating questions in three different areas. First, he examines his creative wisdom in the world around and in the heavens. Secondly, God turns to the theme of his care of, of the animal creation, his providence and what, what he does in that area. And then finally, he turns to his restraint of the forces of evil at work in the world. We're, we're only going to take these first two of these covering chapters 38 and 39. And, and God introduces this with a series of questions about the foundations of the earth. In verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determines its measurements. Surely you know, or, or who stretched the line upon it, or, or, what, where, or what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
Perhaps no more magnificent poetry in all the world than in this section of the book of Job, it, this, this marvelous language. And here God is calling Job's attention to some of the bases on which the earth itself rests. He calls them the foundations of the earth, and he challenges Job to explain them. Now, he simply puts the questions. These are just sort of kindergarten questions. They come in terms of where, who, what, and when. When these things happen, first of all, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where was man? He was not even in existence yet. And that is why in all of the centuries since this question was asked of Job, man has never been able to settle the question of origin. Where did the universe come from? How did it originate? Who brought it into being? What process was followed? The whole world is debating that question even today. But humanity has never been able to answer the question of the origin of the earth because humanity was not there to observe it. Then, in verse 5, the Almighty infers that someone helped him in this. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or, or who stretched the line on it? There is at least a hint there that someone assisted him in this work. We, we recall how the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. There we learn that the Trinity work, or the Trinity was at the work in creation. It was in, in this question to Job, there's this hint that God the Father was not alone in this work that the other members of the Trinity were involved with it as well. And then in verse 6 is the question of, well, what was the procedure? How, how did God hang the earth on nothing? And as Job himself put it earlier in the account, back in the days when the scripture was were written down, the scientific world of the, that day believed that the earth was flat. There were strange legendary accounts of how the earth came into being and that it floated on elephants' backs or it rested on turtles swimming in the sea, this kind of thing. But in the book of Job, we have a clear statement that God was, has hung the earth on nothing. And now God asked Job, well, how did that happen? And the only answer that science can give us today is gravity. But nobody knows what gravity is. It's just a word that we use, but it doesn't tell us what it is. And here again is a question that we still can't answer today. How is the earth suspended between the various heavenly bodies in such a way that it moves in such orderly procession through the, Ill, the, through the reaches of space? How can it be? We still don't know. And then finally, God says, were you there when it happened? And, and he links it with this tremendous event when the whole creation seemed to break into harmony and melody, when, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And then in the next section, God turns to the most prominent feature on the earth, the sea. If we look at pictures of the earth as seen from space, we see that, that three quarters of the globe is covered by, by water. God employs a some symbolism here as though the ocean suddenly were born like a baby springing forth. Right. And, and, and so in verse eight, or, or who shut in the sea with doors when it bursts forth from the womb, when I made clouds, it's garment and thick darkness, it's swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. We know that water is made up of two invisible gases, hydrogen and oxygen. And when these two are combined, a visible substance, water, 
springs into being. What a moment. What this dramatic moment when God caused these invisible gases to join together in such quantities that an ocean suddenly spread across the planet. And God is asking Job about it. But Job knows nothing at all about it. Yet the emphasis of this seems to be on how the ocean is controlled. God said he puts bounds to it and, and said to it, hey, this far shall you come and no further. And here, here your, shall your proud waves be stayed. Isn't it interesting of the ways of God that the substance he uses to keep the ocean in its bed, sand, is one of the most shifting, unreliable substances we know of. Beaches of sand hold the oceans in place and say, this far shall you come. Then in the next verses, God examines Job on some of the secret processes of earth. First, on the matters of day and night. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and it is dyed like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. God describes here how the sun rises in a different place every morning, changing according to the seasons, moving north to south. And his question is, have you caused the dawn to know its place? Are are you the one? Are you able to tell the sun just where to get up so that it marks the exact season of the year? And then he says, are you able to control the effect of the light on, on society? Light takes hold of the skirts of the earth, he says. Have we ever seen the sun coming up and noticed how the fingers of light seem to to lay hold of the darkness and sort of dissipate it? This imagery speaks of how the wicked are shaken out of it. They, They hide from the light and go back into the dens, so to speak. And then as the day goes on, the sun rising, going across the heavens, changing the colors of things like clay under the seal. It is dyed like a garment. We know how scenery is changed by the different positions of the sun through the day in the evening hours when the redness spreads across it. What what a different cast it puts on things. And, And God is asking Job, can you do this? Are you able to change it all like this? And then finally, can you govern how the light affects the night and controls the length of time that darkness uh, prevails, that darkness has when, when the wicked operate and to stop them in their deeds when then daylight comes then, then he speaks of, of the deep things of earth. Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? It's remarkable that we're only now beginning to plumb and map some of the, the deepest places of the sea. The secrets of the deep are still just largely hidden to us, and, and we are just beginning to get into it. And then God says, how about beyond life, Job? Can you, can you understand that? And then in verse 17, have, have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? It's still a mystery to us. Science is unable to help us here. Verse 18 represents perhaps one question out of all the lists that we maybe can answer today. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Do you know what is on the surface of the globe? Well, today, perhaps we can say, yes, we pretty well know what is there. We've mapped most of the earth, not all of it, but, but, has, but most of it has been explored. So thousands, thousands of years after Job, we have finally come to somewhat of an answer on that. We know that you can take a plane in London, um, have lunch in New York, dinner in San Francisco, and of course, your baggage somewhere in Spain, maybe. I don't know. We, we've covered the expanse of the earth at last, even though... 
there's still some areas that, that we don't know much about, but, but how long has it taken to solve just one of these simple problems that Job was asked about? And God goes into other mysteries, the common things of life. Well, where, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where's the place of darkness that you, make, that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the numbers of your days is great. God's sort of heaping some irony a little bit on Job. What he's asking basically is, do you understand how light is made? Or, or once again, the scientific world is baffled. Even today by that, two conflicting theories exist that try to explain how light emerges, how it suddenly comes into being. But we don't really know. We, we cannot take it to its territory and discern the paths to its home. We're unable to solve that simple process. In verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of, of the hail of which I've reserved for time of trouble for the day of battle and for war? That verse to me is one of the most intriguing verses in all of the, this. It, and it suggests that there's some hidden promise process in the formation of snow and hail, the process of vaporizing or freezing or whatever it may be that will release tremendous power, which God says man will probably discover in the time when the whole of the earth is engaged in battle and war. Something something is hidden there. And, and God says, I've reserved it for the time of trouble. That is, it's almost always in scripture a reference to the last days, to the the terrible time of Jacob's trouble when the great tribulation comes on the earth. And God says, I have hidden something in the snow and the hail. Do you, do you understand that, Job? And can we imagine what Job must be looking like by now? I mean, all these questions coming at, and, and he's not got one of them right yet. And then God goes on in verse 24, what is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where is the east wind and scattered on the earth? Who has a cleft, uh, a channel for the torrents of rain or in a way for the thunderbolt or to bring rain on a land where no man is or on the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and, and make the ground put forth grass has, has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew. God's examining the forces and, and the common phenomenon of storms. He says, Hey, can you understand this job? And, Many of the scholars have been puzzled by the way this section begins. The question is, what is the way to place? Uh, what is the way to the place where the light is distributed? For for uh, for many years, um, you know, we have wondered why God begins with light being distributed. But at last, we have begun to get a little clue as to what this may mean. For for now, the scientific world knows that all energy comes from the sun. It is. It is the rays of the sun broken into various forms of ray activity, X-rays, actinic rays, rays of various forms. And, and that, that active, activate processes in the world around us, which all functioning in the natural world comes. Energy comes from the sun, and it produces various phenomena, including the evaporation of water, formation of clouds. It produces thunder, the release of bolts of lightning. All this is coming ultimately from the rays of the sun as they strike the earth. It, it's, it is amazing how much is revealed here that we have painfully worked out after thousands of years of scientific studies, but it all seems to fit into what God is saying to and, and then asking of Job. And then, and then God speaks on the way he takes care of the desert. Who cares for the desert? Who cares for that? God says, who, who brings rain to cause the desert blossoms to come that no one's ever going to see except God himself. As 
A poet says, Full many a rose is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. The only answer, of course, is God does this. Man, humanity, does not think of those things. He, we, it is a hard enough time handling our own problems, let alone taking care of the deserts of the earth. And then God asks, has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? Science now knows that the rain does have a father. Before a rain can form into drops, there must be dust in the air, and the raindrops form around those little specks of dust, and that's why we, we spray the clouds with certain substances to try to increase rainfall, because we know the rain has a father. And then in verse 29 through 30, we have God's questions about frost, from whose womb did ice come forth, and who has given birth to the, to the, to the hoarfrost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Who understands the processes by which ice is formed? I mean, we see it happen, but nobody has ever been able to answer the question why water, when it freezes, does something that hardly any other substance on earth does. Instead of contracting like normal substances, water expands when it freezes. That simple fact makes life possible on earth. It would be impossible to have humanity here if water acted like everything else, but it doesn't. And, and God is asking some very penetrating questions. And for him, they are simple ABCs of life. But Job is unable to answer them. And then in verse 31, God turns to explore the heavens. And first, the stellar heavens. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazareth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish the rule on the earth? From the very beginning of time, men have known that in some strange way, the stars affect the earth. No one has ever been quite able to analyze it. Many Wild guesses have been made, and many strange so-called sciences have emerged from it, such as astrology, which insists that every human life is governed by what the stars do, and lots of people read their horoscopes every day to see what the stars have said that they can do that day. But that's not what God is asking about here. He's saying, what about the influence the stars seem to have on the seasons, the Pleiades, the, the little circle of stars high in the heavens appear in the springtime. It, it ushers forth the spring. It brings the spring. And what he's asking here is, can you, can you bring the spring into its season? Orion, the mighty hunter, strides across the winter skies. You see, you see him, and, and, and we see him sometimes in December, right? What God is asking Job is, can you produce winter? Can you lead forth the Mazareth? Uh, it's it's a bit doubtful as to what that word means, but many of the scholars take it as referring to constellations that make up the zodiac. He's asking, can you control the zodiac and its influence on the affairs of humanity? The bear, um, the, what we would maybe call the Great Dipper, and its points to the north. So the great bear points to the north. And in the scripture, the north is always seen as the seat of God. So that the whole universe seems to revolve around his throne. And Job is being questioned here as to how much he understands about this. Now, even astronomy today does not understand this. There, there are mysterious objects in space that we don't know anything about. These black holes are puzzling. They're mysterious phenomenon that we, we've not really begun to understand much about. And so we, we can't go much further than Job in answering these questions. In verse 34 through 38 cover 
atmosphere, Kevins. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of water may cover you? How, how much would you give today to be able to, to do that, right? To say to the clouds, come on, rain. Can, can you send forth lightnings that may go and say to you, here we are, uh, who, who's put wisdom in the clouds or given understanding to the mists? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or, or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clouds cleave fast together? When, when we have a drought and we desperately need rain, who can say to the heavens, rain, and it, and it comes? You know, God is teaching us some lessons right, right here and right now um, in this area. He's showing us the, the impotence of humanity and of, of science to solve some of the most fundamental problems of life. Um, I'm not anti-science in any sense of the uh, of the word or imagination, but but it, it's not solving some very fundamental problems of life. And now, in these last three verses, which really belong with chapter thirty-nine, God turns to His providential care of the animal world, and He begins by saying that He supplies food for them. Can they? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait? In their covert, who provides for the raven its prey when the young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? What, what do we think we would do if God suddenly gave to humanity the responsibility to feed the animal world as well as ourselves? When we consider the mess we're making of feeding everyone today, can we imagine how much worse it would be if all the animals had to stand in line for food as well? And God is saying to Job, do you, do you handle that sort of thing? Well, no, he doesn't. And, and yet the animals exist and have existed for centuries and, and they prosper and they increase when, when humanity is out of the picture. God preserves the species. It is man who wipes them out. And so he goes on. What, what, what about this, this, uh, this, this care for the animals? Do you know when the mountain goats bring forth? Do you, do you observe the calving uh, of the hinds? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they bring forth, when they crouch and bring forth their offspring? And are you delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong and they grow up in the open. They go forth and do not return to them. Do, do we handle that? Have, have we got a big blue cross, um, blue shield plan for the animal world to take care of them when they come in, you know, into birth? Well, no, Job, Job has, has to hang his head down again, and, and he does not know anything about it, and neither do we. And so then God goes on to examine the very, the very nature of the animal world. He examines the wide-ranging freedom of the wild donkey. I mean, he, he scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the, of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Who, who made animals to have these distinctive natures and to be driven by such powerful instincts that they will inevitably, inevitably uh, do what they were made to do? And and not be like other animals in that way. Who, who gave them these instincts? That's the question Job faces. He speaks of the wild ox. Uh, the untamable nature of certain animals is something that God alone has given them. And then he speaks of the stupidity of the ostrich. And he takes he, he, he himself takes the blame for it. Yeah, I think it's a very 
funny passage, really, in Scripture. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are the pinions and plumage of love, for she leaves her eggs on to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. She she deals cruelly with her young as, as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she she laughs at the horse and his rider. You see, an ostrich can outrun a horse, and, and yet it's so stupid that it walks off and it leaves its eggs right out in the open. It, it, it will not take care of its young. But God says, I like it that way. I made her that way. The ostrich, the camel, and some of these other strange animals show that God has a sense of humor. I mean, look at the, the duck-billed platypus, which looks like it was put together with like leftover spare parts of creation. Why does God make animals like that? Well, I think it's largely to show us certain characteristics of our humanity. And that's that's what he's describing here, verses 19 through 25. We have description of the courage of the horse. Do you give the horse's might? Do you clothe his neck with strength? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. See, humanity has used the horse in battle because the horse has a unique character. He, he loves conflict and competition. This is the nature of a horse. Now, now who made it that way? That, that's, God's, that's God's question. And then he speaks of the hawk and the eagle and of their strange ways and their keenness of sight. And, and finally, he concludes with, with this question in, in chapter 40. And then the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Are you able, Job? Have you done? Have you? How have you done in this exam? I've asked all these questions. How many of you got right? If you can handle these things, these little things, um, and if you can't handle them, then how are you going to press me on the great questions of what lies behind the strange experiences of life? And, and Job is silenced by this display of God's creative wisdom. And what Job says is basically, I see that I'm I'm not in the same league as you are. I, I'm, I am of small account. Remember earlier he had said, if I could just come before the Lord like a prince, would I come before him? I would present my case and prove myself right. But now he says, I, I'm not in the same league at all. I, couldn't, I can't handle this. But notice he's not gone deep enough yet. Job is silenced, but he's, he's not convinced. He's not yet seen what the basic problem is. He's not learned what God had in mind when he invited Satan to try him in the first place. So God picks it up again, and and in the next account, he produces, by the use of symbols, a revelation of truth about what he is doing in the life of Job that leaves Job absolutely without an answer, that leaves him humbled before him, spread out on his face before God, waiting for God to deliver and restore him, which he immediately does. But so far he only has been silenced. And I think that that often happens to us. Sometimes our troubles bring us to a place where, where we just finally have to shut up, where we, where we stop complaining. But, but that's not what God wants. He wants us, what he wants for us is to trust him and to put the matter back into his hands 
and believe that he is working things out and that he's working them out rightly. And when in our next look at Scripture, um, God will show us why it is that he has to do it this way. Amen, and God bless.